Hi everybody, I'm Matt Bird. And I'm Steve Bird. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So, how you been, Matt? I've been well. Things have been going well. I've got uh, another episode of my other podcast, the Secrets of Story podcast, that is ready to go. I am going to go ahead, and we try to be bi-weekly with that podcast, but it ends up always being monthly. But this podcast is goofus to the gallant of the other podcast, and wait. sticks to its... Wait, no, wait, no, we're, no, we're gallant. No. I'm gallant. You and James are goofus. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Steve is gallant. James is goofus. Gallant does it right. Goofus does it wrong. See, the thing is, James doesn't listen to this podcast, so I can rag on him all I want. Excellent. Well, actually, that's that's a little disappointing. That means he won't hear it. So, you know. No, it's good, because he would get his revenge. (laughs) I'm sure that someone will tell him. So, meanwhile, um, I had a laser fire this week. You had a laser fire? You were you shooting ray guns at somebody? So I, I usually have about five or more careers going at any one given time in my life. And uh, one of the things I do is I run the laser department at my local makerspace. And uh, yeah, one of our longstanding workhorse lasers uh, died in a catastrophic fire. <laughs> well, I saw you trying to sell this laser on Facebook, the one that is shooting out <laughs> rays, shooting out lasers and starting catastrophic fires. You're like, oh, time to sell it to somebody else. Yeah, no, that, that was another laser that was uh, donated to us a while ago. And it's really been basically a paperweight for us because it didn't really meet our needs. And so I sold that one. There, there's a whole other, there's all this whole, believe me, if I got into everything, it wouldn't, uh, it, it, it would be a whole thing. It'd be a whole hour. But uh, suffice it to say, we had a horrific fire inside one of our lasers. Nobody was hurt, but uh, the laser was, uh, I thought it was dead, dead, dead at first. But at this point, we're going to take it and another one that's almost identical to it. And we're going to get enough parts between the two of them to make one. So my gosh, um, you are an actual laser technician. I am. To you. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, when we start getting into, uh, you know, the living laser and actually, well, Crimson Dynamo, for that matter, he, he starts out with laser technology. I'll be able to really weigh in on that. So Yes, we'll get your expert opinion. Okay, Steve. <laughs> so we've got a lot of books to get to tonight. I assume that we're going to go ahead and try to handle seven books in one setting here. And this will probably be split into two episodes. This will not be the last time we'll have to face this decision. Marvel is expanding as of this month, and it will only continue to expand throughout 1963. Yes, and we're going to have to figure out how we're going to be dealing with that long term here. At the moment, we're kind of winging it, and we'll see what we do. Yes. So, but this is a big month. It is a huge month. Last month, we had the Kirby Pocalypse, where we had Kirby leaving all of his books. This month, we have new artists on four of Kirby's five books. Plus, we've got two new books that Kirby will never draw. And we have the debut of Spider-Man number one and the debut of Iron Man this month. So this is a huge month. This is really the beginning of Marvel Phase 2 to a certain extent. And also, this is the first time we have the Hulk actually interacting with other characters in the Marvel Universe, too. Yes, it is a big... Well, we've got really our two first big crossovers this month. We've got yeah big Hulk Fantastic Four crossover, but we've also got a big Spider-Man Fantastic Four crossover. 
Indeed, indeed, yeah. It's uh, they're they're really, and yeah, I can see what you mean about this being the beginning of Marvel Phase Two, in that we're really kind of putting everything together into a cohesive Marvel universe, and that really is what I always had the impression as a kid made the Marvel universe different and special uh, in comparison to the DC universe. That you know, the DC universe might have had the more iconic characters. But they were all kind of siloed. Yes, they did eventually sort of merge them together into a universe to some extent. But it never really felt like it held together like this does. And this is where we're really starting to knit those things together here. So yeah, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. So which one are we doing right. first? So we we have been going in alphabetical order every month. And that means we've been starting with Fantastic Four number one, and that's worked out well because that also happens to be Marvel's best book at this point. So we were starting with the best. Well, now, if we go in alphabetical order, we have a new book that's first in alphabetical order, Amazing Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man number one. And I'm like, well, should we stick with Fantastic Four first? I'm like, well, no, people may be getting bored of that. And Amazing Spider-Man sort of takes over as Marvel's flagship book at this point. Of course, Amazing Fantasy number 15 just became the most valuable comic book of all time. It just <laughs> sold for multi-millions of dollars. I would say that Spider-Man eclipses the Fantastic Four to become the face of Marvel. I'm happy to start leading off every episode with Amazing Spider-Man. Sure, absolutely. Let's uh, jump into some uh, Ditko madness here. And also, the, the other thing, I guess, is that also Ditko shows up in two of the superhero books this month, which is the first time that's happened. And the so last the time for a while. Yes, yes. So The Amazing Spider-Man number one says two great feature-length Spider-Man thrillers. Spider-Man is uh, inside this sort of a semicircular plexiglass thing. And he says, the Fantastic Four think I'm trapped, but they don't suspect my real power. And you've got the Fantastic Four all looking agitated around him. And then there's a banner at the bottom that says, extra added attraction. Spider-Man meets the Fantastic Four as the chameleon strikes. Yes. So. so this is the first time that Ditko has been allowed to do a cover. I'm sure they must have considered having bringing Kirby in to do the cover as they brought Kirby in to do the cover of Amazing Fantasy 15. But this is Ditko. It's a nice cover. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, you know, I, there's a reason that Stan always wanted uh, Jack to do the covers if he could get him. At the same time, Jack was never the strongest at drawing Spidey's costume. Uh, no. He could pull it off from time to time, but it was sort of a crapshoot on whether it was going to come out right. Ditko had drawn a cover for Amazing Fantasy number 15 that was rejected. Right. And that was actually a great cover. I prefer that cover to this cover. Right? Yeah. I don't know what the, what the reasoning was behind it. As it is, the Jack Kirby inked by Steve Ditko cover they did use for Amazing Fantasy 15 was fantastic and it's iconic for a reason that is interesting they didn't get uh jack to do the cover for this one i wonder yes. if steve, i wonder if steve insisted so we're watching amazing spider-man into his own book here he appeared in amazing fantasy number 15 and then disappeared for several months he's been gone for like what three or four months at this point i think longer than that and then suddenly comes back on the scene now he's getting the big launch he's getting his own full-length book every month no longer appearing as short stories in an anthology unfortunately they are going to make room for him by getting rid of hulk who has his last issue this month but he gets a big auspicious debut here he gets two stories in this first issue let's go and do him the first story is not named it just says spider-man i guess you could say the name of the story is freak public menace because uh, that's what people are shouting at him here on the first page we begin with 
Spider-Man, we begin with Peter Parker angrily throwing his Spider-Man costume across the room, as he will do well, many hold, times hold, hold over on, the years. Wait, wait a minute. No, we begin on the splash page with a really weird drawing of Spider-Man. Yes. I mean, he, he's like all knock-kneed and, and strange and awkward there, which is, you know, just very much Ditko has a completely different approach to Spider-Man than Jack Kirby has to any of his characters. And I just want to I want to acknowledge that in that splash page that that is not a splash page that would you would ever mistake for a Kirby splash page. And yeah, then you've got all these J. Jonah Jameson is yelling at him who we haven't met yet and then there's all these giant fists being shaken at him in a way that is very similar to a Steve Ditko Mr. A story or something. Yes. The oppression of society, the fist of society is coming down. Mr. A was Steve Ditko's bizarre self-published Randian superhero he did later named for Ayn Rand's objectivist motto A is A. But we are many years away from Mr. A here. We are doing Spider-Man and it is gorgeous. So then We cut to Peter Parker. He's throwing his thing across the room. He says, Uncle Ben is dead. And all because I was too late to save my Spider-Man costume. I wish there was no such thing. Then he remembers his origin. Then he goes downstairs and finds out that Aunt May is begging the landlord for more time to pay the rent. He is like, oh, what can I do? He's like, well, I could turn to crime. And he pictures himself turning to crime and then pictures himself in jail with Aunt May visiting himself in jail. Decides not to do it. Decides to go back and go on TV again. His room, his classmates then in science class, he's always in science class, his classmates tell him, hey, do you want to come join us watching Spider-Man on TV? He, of course, can't make it. And then they make fun of him. He then, Spider-Man then appears on TV. The promoter writes him a check made out to Spider-Man. Spider-Man <laughs> does not realize this will be a problem, tries to cash the check. The snooty banker refuses to cash the check without any form of ID. Yeah, he is quite uh, snooty there for a bank teller. Um, yes. And, and and to the uh, show promoter's credit, he did try to tell Spider-Man that this was not going to work to try to cash a check <laughs> that just says Spider-Man on it. You know, I'm like, dude, you could have made it out to cash. <laughs> yes, make it out to cash. Come on, man. Yeah. So then it cuts to J. Jonah Jameson. It says, as Spider-Man finds he cannot cash his desperately needed check just across town, a man at a typewriter is making still more trouble for him. So he publishes the article, and then that night Spider-Man goes to get back on TV and is told, sorry, there'll be no show tonight or any night, because suddenly the newspapers have announced that Spider-Man is a menace, and so they've decided not to have him on TV anymore. And we then get J. Jonah Jameson on TV. So it's always tempting. I know you've talked about trying to view all Dicko comics through a Randian lens, and it's tempting to go like, Spider-Man is a Randian hero who is oppressed by society, and... Here we have J. Jonah Jameson as this TV commentator representing the media, denouncing him on TV. But it's interesting that a lot of the other heroes that Steve Ditko created, created solo, were angry TV ranters themselves. The True. question, Vic Sage was an angry TV ranter. He was doing exactly what J. Jonah Jameson's doing here. Mr. A was basically an indie version of the question. He had the same job. And the Creeper was another Dicko hero who had the same job. So oh, really, I didn't realize that was the Creeper's uh, background. Yeah, but I, I've often said that uh, Steve Ditko's original version of the question was very much what Bill O'Reilly would imagine himself as a, uh, <laughs> as, you know, it's just like, yes, yeah, Simon incorruptible newsman by day who says things that people don't want to hear and by night i creep you know i i prowl the streets and i beat up the bad guys who uh are going to be just 
fall through the justice system. Uh, you know, that, that's very much the way I feel about him. But yeah, that, that's really interesting that, yes, this is flipped from where from where he goes with this eventually. Uh, one thing, though, that, that uh, on the other hand, to turn this back around in the other direction is it's like uh, Spider-Man just got Spider-Man, the good guy, just got canceled. Right. Yes. So. Very much. <laughs> All right. He was Anyways. literally canceled. His show, his show was canceled. And it says, so then here's Jameson on TV. He's ranting. He says, the youth of this nation must learn to respect real heroes, men such as my son, John Jameson, the test pilot, not selfish freaks such as Spider-Man, a masked menace who refuses to even let us know his true identity. And then uh, Spider-Man is at the newsstand. Of course, the news, the guy running the newsstand then has to say, Bah, I don't even believe there is a Spider-Man. It's all a publicity stunt. So this is one of many times in the Marvel Universe people will assume things are publicity stunts, which, uh, as Brian Cornyn has pointed out, assumes that people have much bigger publicity budgets in the Marvel Universe than they do in real life. Right. So then Spider- So then Peter Parker sees Aunt May now pawning her jewelry. He gets so upset. He doesn't know what to do. But then he, while he's still thinking about it, he goes and he watches the rocket launch. He sees, which, which apparently is in New York City. Yes, <laughs> good point. <laughs> all those, all those New York City rocket launches. You know, that's all the tourists come for it. Yeah, it seems to be maybe over Jamaica Bay or something here. So then he, so then he goes ahead. Uh, the rocket goes awry. We see the NASA guys now with J.J. Jameson because it's his son of the rocket, all saying, oh no, the capsule is doomed. Peter Parker changes into Spider-Man. He goes and tells them all try to rescue it. Jameson says, Spider-Man, bah, he's just a publicity-seeking phony. He's trying to grab a headline. What can he do? So then Spider-Man says, let me show you. Spider-Man convinces a pilot to take him up in a plane, goes up in the plane, uses his webbing to attach himself to the rocket capsule. Let's just point out the rocket capsule, is has its orbit has deteriorated so badly or, you know, didn't, it's, it's gotten so far from actually reaching orbit that it is in the atmosphere enough that Spider-Man can breathe while he's uh, webbing the thing. So yes. <laughs> this is, uh, this is basically, this thing's just falling to earth at this point, right? <laughs> well, it starts zooming around in circles, like as if it had some sort of propulsion of its own, which of course this thing would not have. Right. This thing is acting differently than any sort of capsule that was ever actually launched in the actual space race. <laughs> so then John Jameson says, capsule under manual control again, will eject shoot and land immediately? And Spider-Man says, he's, this it. he's safe, he gets away. He's like, from now on, I guess I shouldn't have any trouble about performing in public. I'll bet Mr. Jameson himself would even hire me. A little oh, right. foreshadowing there. And then he says, well, when he reads the next edition of the newspaper, Peter Parker is astounded to see J. John Jameson has written an editorial saying, this newspaper demands that Spider-Man be arrested and prosecuted. Editorial by J. Jonah Jameson. And he thinks that Spider-Man set up the whole thing and set up his son to failure. And Spider-Man is just horrified. Peter Parker is horrified. Things have gone from bad to worse. And then the story ends. So that is a, a bleak little story to begin our first issue with. It goes ahead and really sets up uh, where they're going to go with this. So, you know, I've often heard about, and Matt, you would know more about this than me, but uh, how when you write a pilot for a TV show that, you know, you can have the greatest pilot in the world, but you need to know what you're going to be doing for episodes after that. And that, uh, you know, this is sort of that first episode after the pilot where you're kind of establishing what these, you know, monthly episodes, what these monthly issues are going to be like here, where, you know, he is going to be the good guy doing good deeds because 
he has a good heart and he wants to do right by his family and his loved ones in society. And meanwhile, society does nothing but hate him for it. Uh, and that's really kind of where we're going to be going with this. Well, and you have to wonder, did Stanley know at this point that in the next issue that Peter Parker would go to work for Jameson? I don't know. Or was, or was that an inspiration that either Lee or Ditko had with the second issue? Yeah, no clue. I've never heard any stories about that. You have to wonder. It seems logical enough to just set it up in this issue and then have it pay off sort of the next issue when, ironically, Pete has to go to him for a job. But maybe that wasn't. Maybe he was just supposed to be a one-off character. Who knows? But obviously they knew they had something great in that character and they worked out a way to keep him in the book. Okay, so and then, then the next... John, and then John John Jameson goes on to a really bizarre career in Marvel after this. He eventually, on one of his space missions, turns into a space werewolf, basically. Yes, very <laughs> um, much so. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a little weird. And, and, then he, and then he'll start in a fantasy book. He'll go to another dimension, and as the space werewolf, he will have sword and sandals, swashbuckling adventures with dragons and princesses in another world yeah space opera yes pretty much straight up space opera yeah it's and when we were reading comics as a kid you know we would get the marvel official handbook of the marvel universe and you know oh yeah okay so here's man wolf and it's like oh this is john jameson and you'd read all this stuff about what man wolf did and then you know you'd go back and look at a reprint of you know uh spider-man number one you're like really this dude is (laughs) (laughs) that's man wolf Exactly. Things go in different directions in the Marvel Universe. So next we've got Spider-Man versus the Chameleon. Yes. And this is also where Spider-Man is going to attempt to join the Fantastic Four. One thing I want to point out is that this is the story where they refer to him as Peter Palmer through almost the entire yes. issue, through almost the entire story. So they hadn't really gotten these things down quite yet. <laughs> uh, so yes. he's Peter Palmer throughout the second story and just nobody caught it. I guess it's the problem with having the editor also be the writer is that when the writer makes a mistake, there's no editor to catch it. So Peter Parker shows up at the um, Fantastic Four offices. We begin with, we know him as Peter Palmer, but the world knows him only as Spider-Man. And Spider-Man is now thinking, say, why didn't I think of this before? There's a way I can make some money by joining the Fantastic Four. So he, uh, with this idea in mind, he then shows up dressed as Peter Palmer at the uh, Baxter building. After determining he can't get in through the elevator, it goes up to the top of a nearby building. He goes over to the Baxter building where they get an alarm. He enters through an open window because, of course, skyscrapers in New York always have open windows. And uh, then he gets in and this semicircular thing of this trap with a plexiglass doors or something like that traps him he uses super strength and he gets out of there so then he gets into a fight with the thing and he hurls the thing somewhere and uh he then ties up mr fantastic with his webbing invisible woman tries to lasso him as though she she were wonder woman (laughs) this is i think steve dicko is like uh what's invisible girl's thing again how does she attack people and then like stan and jack are going like oh she doesn't he's like okay then i'll give her a lasso and have her try to (laughs) lasso spider-man right so then eventually uh spider-man and fantastic four reach somewhat of a truce and uh, or a, st- a stalemate, I should say. Spider-Man then just says, "Hey, I I came to be a member of your team. You know, I'm. How much does it pay? I'm sure I'm worth a lot of money." They're like, "Dude, we're like a nonprofit. We're like every money we get from anything goes into scientific research." There are two different comics this month in which somebody 
prize the doors open of the Fantastic Four elevator when they realize they can't get in. And there are two comics this month in which somebody demands to be paid by the Fantastic Four and is told that Fantastic Four doesn't pay. So we have the this this comic is the first introduction of those two elements. Okay. All right. They're like, no, so I'm sorry, we're a nonprofit. We do scientific research. And, you know, it's like, we don't pay anybody any money. And then he's just like, oh, you cheapskates. I'm out of here. I hate you people. He heads out. The Fantastic Four are sure that we'll hear more from that young man in the future. So then we get a change of scene to see the chameleon, who uh, I don't believe it's established yet in this issue that he is a russian spy is it no well yeah he's stealing plans at the beginning and then he thinks the iron curtain countries will pay a fortune for these plans right and later i think they established that he actually is russian and i think like what craven's cousin or something like that if i'm not mistaken oh i don't remember that okay uh, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure that's oh no in, i believe you i'm pretty sure it's still in the lee ditko issues if i'm not mistaken okay um, but anyway, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that. But anyway, so the chameleon, he's this weird guy who like has this anonymizing mask over his face that then somehow allows him to more easily slip other masks and stuff onto and off of his head, which doesn't really make much sense to me, but okay, that's fine. If you're so, going to wear a mask, the first rule of wearing a mask is wear two masks and then that'll make like, it everything easier. I tell you what, that apparently is a huge thing in the Marvel Universe. People wearing a mask <laughs> over another mask and no one ever it's like, oh, no, I'm just talking to Joe over here. It's like, <laughs> no, I'm actually somebody else and I've got a mask on. It's like, oh, my goodness. And then underneath that, another mask. And it's like, I had no idea that that wasn't just your face. I just always thought you looked rubbery. I don't know. Yes. Right. So so the chameleon is, sees the news about the spider uh, Spider-Man being rejected from the Fantastic Four. So he figures Spider-Man must be desperate for money and says that'll make him a good fall guy for what I'm doing. So he sends out a message over yes. a frequency that only insects and spiders could hear. OK, so it sounds very similar to the thing in uh, the Superman movie. Uh, where, you know, uh, Lex Luthor sends the uh, the message out to Superman. Peter Parker actually hears this message and comes to meet the person for the profitable uh, thing that he's offering. So we see Chameleon has uh, infiltrated a military base. Or is it military or something else? He's He's disguised himself as a security guard in the building that he's going to rob. And then underneath that mask, he then has another <laughs> Spider-Man mask. So once again, this is a place where he's got at least three masks on in this case. He's got his regular chameleon mask, and then he's got a Spider-Man mask, and then he's got the mask of the guard. And this apparently causes no breathing problems, and no one looks at this outer mask and thinks, why aren't your lips moving? <laughs> Why is your head so big for your body? Because you've got three masks on. If there's one thing that we've all learned in the last year and a half, it's that it's no fun having to wear a mask all the time. And then, so this is really interesting, on the bottom of page six of this story, so it's you know more than that in the issue itself, the chameleon dressed as Spider-Man has a web gun that he shoots at the guard. Now, my understanding is that in the original Jack Kirby Spider-Man story yeah. that was rejected, the uh, Spider-Man had a web gun. Yeah. So Spider-Man shows up and he is like, okay, I'll see what this uh, money-making scheme is. And meanwhile, Chameleon has just escaped in a helicopter right as the cops come up to the roof. And they're like, oh, we were chasing Spider-Man and here he is. And so, of course, everybody thinks that Spider-Man is the one who just stole these plans. Uh, Spider-Man then pulls sort of an Ant-Man here in that he creates himself a little catapult 
and uh, catapults himself uh, across, you know, it looks like maybe a couple of dozen city blocks uh, and then makes himself a little web parachute to come down and commandeers a boat apparently, a motorboat to go out and meet the red sub where the uh, chameleon is going to pawn his uh, plans. And he then uh, webs up the Soviet sub so that they can't do what they're going to do. So they try to, they submerge to get out of the way. And Spider-Man then catches on to the helicopter and is able to bring it down. However, the chameleon is able to escape at last minute, almost gets away by quickly redisguising himself as a cop, but then Spidey's spider sense tells him, no, 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 that's not uh, what's going on. When the chameleon turns out the lights to get away, Spider-Man is able to use his spider sense to find the guy in the dark, gets him, but then, of course, he's dressed up as a cop, and they're like, he's says, hey, Spider-Man's getting me. He's the bad guy. Go get him. But uh, in the end, Chameleon is actually revealed to uh, have framed Spider-Man. Spider-Man runs off in the distance saying, nothing turns out right. Sob. I wish I never had gotten my superpowers. And then we see a little bit more of the Fantastic Four with something we've already heard a number of times in the Marvel Universe where uh, Sue is saying, Reed, he's so powerful and so confused. What if Spider-Man ever turns his superpowers against the law? Spider-Man has been rejected from membership in the Fantastic Four, but he's sort of an honorary member now because they're doing the thing they like to do so much with their own members. Wonder what would happen if they turned against the law and became a menace. Right, yes, and and what would humanity ever do (laughs) in that case? So, okay, with my usual rule of the second issue of any Marvel hero uh, in these early years being bad, This is, I think, another exception. Uh, At least the first story in here, I really like it. You know, it introduces J. Jonah Jameson. It introduces, what's the rule that I heard some later uh, writers say that uh, the heart of of a Spider-Man story is that in the end, Spider-Man wins and Peter Parker loses. (laughs) I forget what modern writer said that, but uh, we we sort of established that very well here. The second story, eh, you know, it's okay. I, I, <laughs> the chameleon has never made much sense to me as a uh, as a villain myself. But I think I think the Fantastic Four interaction is great, and that's in the second story. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's the chameleon part that gets me. But uh, overall, I think that this is much better than your average second superhero appearance in Yeah, I think this books. is a great issue. I think that both stories are, are worth having. You know, and the chameleon does become a long-lasting character who comes back lots of times, as does John Jameson in various bizarre ways. And of course, we get Jay Jonah, who is just a great character and becomes the central part of the book. I think this is a really excellent issue and just beautifully penciled and inked by Steve Ditko. I'm looking at the sequence in which the chameleon turns out the lights and Spider-Man is operating in the dark. Dicko's one of Dicko's big, you know, obviously Dicko's big advantage over Kirby was always that Dicko inked his own work and Kirby didn't. And that Dicko had a lot more control over lights and blacks than Kirby did. And Dicko could have a whole range of noir and chiaroscuro effects at his hands, uh, inking his own work that Kirby really couldn't do and that Kirby's inkers then didn't feel free to do. And the sequence in the dark is gorgeous and shows off what Ditko is going to be able to do on this book. And then and then the panel on the last page of Spider-Man running off through an alleyway. Of course, now essential to the to Spider-Man, essential to the whole iconography of Spider-Man is running through New York alleyways. Now, of course, and rescuing people in New York alleyways. And of course, the thing is, if you've ever been to New York City, it doesn't have alleyways. 
there are no alleyways in New York City. That's why that, that's why it always smells yes. like trash. Yes, they, yes, because <laughs> there are no alleyways, so everyone has to put their trash just out on the street. And so, even in like the you know richest, you know, one of the most richest, glamorous, uh, you know, kind of uh, storied cities in the world, it almost always smells yes, like trash. Yes, everybody just throws <laughs> their trash out on the street in front of them, and it's because New York was originally New Amsterdam, and it was based on Amsterdam, and Amsterdam was underwater. And so they didn't have room in Amsterdam. It's given that all the all the land had to be reclaimed from the sea. They didn't have room for alleyways. And so when they built New Amsterdam, they didn't build alleyways there either. And of course, that's the whole reason New York works so well is because it's got such population density. And the reason it has such population density is that it doesn't have alleyways. And that's how they're able to sustain a subway system and everything. But this will probably all end up getting cut. So why am I still talking? <laughs> I don't know. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Is, are we doing Fantastic yes. Four next? Is that next? That is next in alphabetical order. Let us do Fantastic Four number 12. I've almost learned my ABCs. It says on the cover, <laughs> at last, the Fantastic Four meet the Hulk. And they're all in tunnels underneath the ground. And Johnny is saying, the Hulk is nearby. And I can feel it. And the Hulk is thinking, another second and I'll destroy them all. And then it says, a book-length epic, need we say more? So then we begin with, Alicia has taken the thing to the symphony. And she says, oh, Ben, wasn't Beethoven's fifth the most beautiful symphony you ever heard? And the thing responds, if you say so, kid, personally, I get my kicks from low-down New Orleans jazz, which is an interesting character note that I don't believe is ever mentioned again. I don't. I don't know if in the re- in the following 60 years of thing stories we've ever seen him at a low down New Orleans jazz concert. Yeah, but you know, I I, I could see him enjoying uh you know the preservation hall jazz. <laughs> Apparently <band>. so. <laughs> and so then yeah, they yeah. go out on the street, there are soldiers there marching. The soldiers mistake the thing for the Hulk, who has never been mentioned in this book so far. Yes, it was. Remember when when uh, uh Johnny Storm burned up the thing's copy of the Hulk number right. one? And he and he was already saying that, like, hey, this character seems a lot that's like right. you. That's right. So this all pays off now because now the thing is mistaken for the Hulk on the street, uh, gets in a fight with the army. Then eventually everything is resolved. We then get the second time this month when he goes back to the Fantastic Four headquarters, finds out he lost his electronic thingamajig, he calls it, that opens our special door. So just like Spider-Man, in this case, he tears the elevator doors off, climbs up the elevator shaft. And he then arrives and tells him about the humiliating thing that just happened to him. But then just then, General Thunderbolt Ross arrives and says, the Hulk has been wrecking our missile installations and we want you, I want you to find and destroy the Hulk. And they go, okay. So then he's telling them all about it. And they all talk about like, well, if, well, so he's showing them film strips of the Hulk. Sue then, not cutting herself in glory, Sue then involuntarily turns invisible for the first time. Reed says, hold it, sir. Sue, where is she? And she says, right here, Reed, forgive me. The sight of that monster unnerved me so that I lost control of my invisibility power. So, so you know, it, it seems to me that like just, you know, as we've talked about before, the first 10 issues of the book, she actually had a lot of agency and that now they just had this issue previously where people are saying, oh, she's useless. What does she do in the book? They're like, hey, you know what? Women are important to important men. <laughs> and then now at this point, she's just like, oh my goodness, I got frightened and I went invisible. I'm sorry. Well, that's the thing is that 
Well, so then we get this sequence. You know, I, I mean, the big twist here is that at the end of the issue, she saves the day. But first we get this humiliating sequence happens where they each talk about what they would do to the Hulk if they ran into him. And the thing pictures himself pummeling the Hulk and the Johnny Torch pictures himself creating a fiery maze from which the Hulk cannot escape. And then Reed Richards pictures himself hiding on the ceiling and then wrapping the Hulk up in his body. And then Sue says... Looks as though I'll just be going along for the ride. I'm not sure how I can help. And which again is ironically setting up her saving the day. But then General Thunderbolt Ross says, Harumph. It actually says Harumph, H A R R U M M P H. Harumph, Miss Storm. A pretty young lady can always be of help just by keeping the men's morale up. And instead of Reed going like, how dare you insult my fiance like that? Or I guess it's not a fiance yet. How dare you insult my girl like that? Reed responds, that's just the way we feel about Sue, General. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and as you know, soon we're going to have the Wasp introduced over in uh, Ant-Man's books and then later Giant-Man. And uh, uh, there's a number of things that come up like this there, too, where it's like he's praising where it's actually the opposite where there he's praising her for, you know, how good a job she's doing at superheroing. And she's like, hey, why can't you ever notice that I'm <laughs> yeah. a lady? <laughs> so yeah there there are some there's some uh uh i think what, what what did you what do you refer to it as a uh, uh, bizarre sexual politics yes some of these things yes <laughs> or dated, dated and maybe. just going to get odder as it goes but so this is the second time in as many issues they've talked about sue's worthlessness but in this case they are at least setting up the fact that she saves the day so then they get their new fantastic car they say that they've gotten too many letters saying the old one looked like a flying bathtub and so they've gotten a new one that looks much cooler that johnny built yes johnny design yes and uh and it breaks up into pods and it's awesome so then they go ahead and they go out west and they meet bruce banner and bruce banner is convinced that the person wrecking the military installations is someone called the wrecker and it's not the hulk nobody wants to hear that and me- meanwhile he-, he talks about his two different uh associates there one is his young helper rick jones and the other one is my assistant dr carl court both with k's k-a-r-l-k-o-r-t who we've never heard of before and he has a sort of vaguely east german sounding name worst of all he's bald so right there yes right and is it just me or does banner look different in this in this issue than he usually does in yeah. his own book maybe it's the coloring of his hair i'm yeah. not sure but anyway, so then Carl uh, yeah, <laughs> Court, they sort of scare off Carl Court and he drops his wallet and Johnny figures out a way to pick it up with a lasso of flame that does not singe the leather. That's <laughs> unclear how that would work. The general wants to talk to Reed alone and leaves the rest of Fantastic Four outside. And then the rest of Fantastic Four decides to barge in and they get like a whole special page of the Fantastic Four barging in. Sue, again, being badass, turns him invisible and yanks away the guard's rifle and so she is already proving to be useful and they go ahead and convince the general that they're gonna save the day we then johnny says to rick jones hey why don't you go ahead and give carl his wallet back rick stops by bruce for just a second and then goes over to see carl court and then as he is taking carl court his wallet he says say what's this card sticking out of court's wallet It looks like it is. It's a membership card in a subversive communist front organization. That means Carl Court must be a red. I've got to tell the Hulk he'll know what to do. But Carl Court has heard him talking aloud to himself and says, you're not telling anyone, you little snoop. So, of course, the problem with this is that in 1963... 
everything was considered a subversive communist front organization. The ACLU was considered a subversive <laughs> communist front organization. The NAACP was considered a subversive communist front organization. The United Negro College Fund was considered a subversive communist front organization. Certainly every union was considered to be a subversive communist front organization. So for all we know, this is the guy's sag after card. This is the guy's... <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, 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 I just find it funny that he's like literally a card carrying communist. Like that's not just a turn of phrase in this case. That is no, he's literally carrying his No, card but he's not him. a card carrying communist. He's a, he's a card carrying communist <laughs> front member, uh, which again, according to the rabid anti-communism of the day, every organization was considered to be a communist front. So then we never find out which communist front organization he's a member of. We then cut back to, he takes Rick hostage with a gun. We then cut back to the Fantastic Four, who seemingly have forgotten all about trying to stop the wrecker and instead are having fun testing out a rocket sled, like the kind of rocket sled we'll see later in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. And they're like, oh, this will be fun. Why don't we try to take a ride in one of these things? And they're going, but suddenly they are remembered that they're supposed to be looking for the wrecker because the wrecker has wrecked the tracks and causes a big crash. And they're like, suddenly Bruce Banner runs up to them and it's like, uh, the wrecker is real, guys, and I think he kidnapped Rick. And they're like, okay, well, then we'll kill the Hulk. And then he's like, no, I don't think it is the Hulk, guys. Trust me, I don't think it's the Hulk. I think there's another wrecker out there. And they're like, whatever, dude. And he's like, fine. And he's like, well, great, what am I going to do? I guess now I have to turn into the Hulk and try to rescue Rick. Then, meanwhile, Callcourt is taking Rick through underground tunnels to his lab. The Hulk has ended up in these underground tunnels as well. The Fantastic Four have ended up in these underground tunnels. Finally, the Thing and the Hulk run into each other. They have beautiful Kirby-drawn fights. We can appreciate our Kirby much more now that he's down to just one book a month, and this is the only Kirby we're getting this month. The fight then goes up above ground to an old abandoned ghost town. They're all beating the crap out of each other, got some beautiful fights. Then suddenly a laser shoots up out of the ground and hits the Hulk in the head, because every time the Thing and the Hulk fight, in a Marvel comic, it has to end up with some sort of third-party intervention. We can never find out who's actually stronger. Then they realize, wait, who shot that laser? And then Thing tears up the ground and he finds a giant robot. It's like, hey, the Hulk wasn't the Wrecker. This is the Wrecker, this giant robot. And says, that must be the Wrecker's machine. Correction, that was the Wrecker's machine. And he smashes the robot. Then he goes down to Carl Court's laboratory where Carl Court has Rick tied up and he turns that same laser that just completely knocked out the Hulk. He's now going to shoot at the thing. But Sue, ironic twist, is the one who karate chops it out of his hand. <laughs> and, yeah, but just, you know, knocks it out of his hand so when he drops it. But then, yeah, that is what does it. But still, it's just sort of like, hey, I'm just going to go ahead and tip it out of your hand. Well, Thanks. but that's that saves the day. And uh, that is the conclusion yes. of the issue. Then... Meanwhile, the Hulk wakes up, he jumps away. We then get to the next day when the Fantastic Four are leaving and they say goodbye to Bruce Banner. And Reed basically lets him know, like, by the way, I know exactly what's going on here, buddy. He says, Banner says, I hope we meet again sometime under better conditions. And Reed says, so do I, Bruce. He says, I've got a feeling there's a lot we have to talk about, like you and Rick and the Hulk, for instance. And then Rick says, think he suspects Doc and and Banner says, hard to tell with a brain like Reed Richards. I'm kind of glad he's on our side. And then 
they fly off and then the banner has changed back to the Hulk and waves to them as they all fly off. Well, although we see that the uh, Fantastic Four actually gets to review a military parade for supposedly the first time that civilians have been given yes. this honor. So for once, they actually get some credit. Right, exactly. So uh, a couple of things that um, I want to just point out that uh, I really liked in this issue before we move along. First of all is the weapon. Uh, yeah, so the weapon that the army tries to use against the Hulk uh, back on pages two and three. I absolutely love the design of the sort of bazooka thing itself and the canister that it sends out with its metal yeah. tendrils. Um, that is just Kirby tech at its absolute best. I absolutely love those, uh, those two pages. So uh, on page 12, where uh, the thing takes out, it tries to prove how strong he is. And he takes out a whole row of what looks like hardcover books from Thunderbolt Ross's shelf and rips them apart. And then he says, oh, no, the big ape ruined my bound set of telephone books. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure what? that's the best use of my tax dollars at work for him to be uh, <laughs> spending his money creating leather bound telephone books. Right. And then also on that same page where uh, Johnny thinks that, you know, Rick, uh, Rick, another teenager, is, of course, going to be so impressed that he's meeting the the torch. And he's like, wow, he's really trying to play it off like he's not impressed. And Rick's like, yeah, yeah, this guy clearly doesn't know that I just hang out with the Hulk all day. <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> yeah. nothing. This is no big thing to me. Yeah. So um, anyway, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Overall, a, a, a good issue. Yes, a good issue of Fantastic Four. It's very odd to suddenly be cross-voting the Hulk book the same month that the Hulk book is canceled. But uh, yes, you could say that this is transitioning the Hulk to being a supporting character in other Marvel books, which he will do quite a bit. And the question is whether or not they realized that they were having to cancel the Hulk yet when they did this story. I have no idea how the timing on this kind of stuff usually Well, it works. doesn't say uh, on the last page, hey, check out the Hulk in his own book. True. But then on the last page of the Hulk's book, as we're going to see in a little bit, it doesn't seem to indicate that it's the last issue of the Hulk's book. Well, I don't know. I think they're sort of setting us up for it. We'll see when we get on to the next Maybe. issue. Um, let okay. me see. So, yeah, I, my last thought on this Fantastic Four issue is just that Sue... There's a sense here of what is Sue's role, what can Sue add, and what she desperately needs is her force field powers, which will eventually yes. make her, in some ways, the most powerful member of the group. And I think it's like issue 30 or something when we finally get her force field powers, which... Oh, it's before that, isn't it? Is it? Anyway, well, one way or the other. We'll, we'll, we'll find somewhere out. Somewhere between like 20 and 30, I think. She gets her force field powers, and she just desperately needs them at this point. It's time. Even though she's still contributing and still doing a great job, the, they can't stop talking about her not contributing. <laughs> so uh, <Right>. there's a... <laughs> and of course, there is a good solution that is coming, and she's going to get a lot more powers, but not yet. Okay, so are we moving on to Incredible Hulk next? Okay, so we're going to do... This week, we have three full length books and four half length books and it just so happens that when you go alphabetically the three full length books come first so if this ends up getting split into two episodes i suspect the first episode will be the three full length books and the second episode will be the four half length books but let's go ahead and get to our final full length book of the month the incredible hulk number six yes so this um this has been a jack kirby uh a jack kirby joint up until this moment but now suddenly steve ditko comes in and there really is a discernible shift in the tone of this thing both in terms of the art but then also just in terms of the overall feel of the entire thing well so it's funny so this is my big revelation 
this month is that I have read all these comics before, and I've always said, like, well, the degree to which people say Stan wasn't really writing these books, I say, well, that's not true, because when I was reading these books before, I wasn't reading them as closely as we're reading them now, and I'm like, well, you know, when Jack leaves the books and all these other artists take over, the books didn't change that much. You know, there was still a lot of continuity, a lot of sense of the books not changing that much when these other artists took over. Well, now that I'm reading the books more closely, for all four of these books that we're going to have new artists on this month, I am noticing the changes when Jack leaves a lot more. And on three of these four books, they have taken the dumbest aspect of the character and immediately excised it. <laughs> so so all four <laughs> books that Jack leaves this month are going to have four different new artists. And in either each of these artists was like, there was something really dumb that Jack was doing that I'm going to call, put a kibosh on immediately. Or Stan was like, now with Jack out of the way, I can put the kibosh on these things that Jack was doing that I never liked. So let's start with the first dumb thing getting excised here in the Hulk, trying to make it, well, even though here, <laughs> there is a panel on page three where it still looks like the Hulk is changing direction in midair. But they then make it very clear, more clear than they've ever made it before. He then says on page eight, I can't fly like a blasted human torch, but these muscles in my legs ain't just for show. All I got to do is spring up and just keep going. So they are trying to, I feel like Stan, we've seen Stan and Jack finding each other where it seems like the in the art he could fly. And then in the writing, they kept trying to insist, no, 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 he's just jumping. I think that either Steve Dicko is stepping in and saying, no, 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 he shouldn't be able to fly. Or Stan is stepping in. Stan with Jack out of the way is stepping in and going like, no, he can't fly. As I think I've said before, my understanding is that Stan Lee, he's generally was more or less against kid sidekicks. Yeah. Rick Jones notwithstanding. And was against characters flying without some somewhat plausible reason they could fly. Like, you know, no Superman type flying. Yes. Uh, so, you know, you, you'd have to have wings. You would have to have be lighter than air. You would have to, you know, something like that. Uh, have a hammer that's dragging you along through the air. <laughs> but, you know, some kind of reason. So, yeah, I, I like I said, I, I think that Kirby's idea was that when he got hit with cosmic rays, uh, when they tried to shoot him off into space, that he got the power to fly. And that Stan was just like, oh, God, Jack, quit it. <laughs> He did not like it. So uh, it seems like no. the first of many times uh, this month when we'll have some Kirby element being immediately forsworn as soon as Kirby's off the book. Anyway, but let's go ahead and get back to The Incredible Hulk number six. We have a beautiful Steve Deco cover where an alien is turning a tank into liquid and then reforming the liquid into a big metal cage going around the Hulk. He says, even your limitless strength cannot save you from me, Hulk. All the metal on earth is mine to command, for I am the metal master. And a soldier is saying, if the Hulk can't handle the Metal Master, it could be in the end of the human race, a full-length epic super thriller. Yeah, we just have a beautiful splash page at the beginning here uh, with the Hulk fighting a big torrent of metal that the Metal Master is throwing at him. But then we get into the story itself, and we see that there is some sort of new weapon, which they're trying to test at the base. Uh, but they are delaying the testing of it because Bruce Banner, who is the one who designed the whole thing, is not there and they need him there to uh, observe the tests. So they're looking for him. Betty is worried about him. Uh, Rick is wondering, like, eh, come on, you know, why, why, isn't, why hasn't he changed back from the Hulk and gotten back here by now? So it turns out that the Hulk, who remember at this point still has Banner's intelligence, although not Banner's mind. Yeah, um, they, they seem to make that a little bit more clear in this one, that he's as smart as Banner 
and he knows things that Banner knows. They like share, they share a mind, but they are still two distinct personalities. Anyway, he can't get back to his secret cave where he's got his gamma gun that changes him back and forth because there are some military exercises going on between them. So he's like, all right, well, you know what? I, it's too late here, so I'm just going to have to try and jump and see what happens. So then at the top of page three is what you were talking about here, where it looks like he is jumping up and then sees the plane is like, nope, and then lands again, <laughs> which, you know, once again, kind of contradicts what they seem to be doing here. But uh, I really like the way that that Steve Ditko interprets the Hulk's face in this whole issue yes. and just, you know, how he gets his anger across. All the soldiers are then called back to the base for some kind of condition red and they have to leave. He then turns himself back into the in back into Bruce Banner. But at first he seems to be like, wait, I'm Bruce Banner, but I'm I'm still feel feel like I'm still strong and then it wears off. So this is supposed to tell us that things are starting to change with the way he changes back and forth. And we're going to get more about that in a little bit. And again, the thing I always love about the Hulk, the reason why I loved him so much as a kid is there's just no status quo in his book. Just the whole idea of what the of the Hulk's transformation is just constantly changing. And we certainly get that in this issue. Yes, the status does not quite quo. No, it does not quo. <laughs> it's punct it's punctuated quoness. All right, so the, but then it wears off and he's weak again. But then he goes and turns on some kind of closed circuit TV he's got to be able to view the test and sees that his new test missile has been turned into liquid and he's able to see through this whole thing the metal master showing up demonstrating how he has control over metal. His people from his planet all have this power, but all of them are good except him. He is evil and so he wanted to use use it for his own gain and his own glory. So they basically, um, what, did they kick him off the planet or did he leave the planet? I think I they, was, they expelled him from the planet. But of all the Astrons, only I was judged a criminal. Only I was sentenced to eternal exile. Yes, yes. So uh, he was uh, sent off into space where he now is here to menace us. So he's uh, doing all sorts of cool stuff with, you know, melting their guns and their helmets and uh, turning a tank into something that looks like the T2000 from Terminator 2 <laughs> to, uh, yeah, uh, it's funny because we've got Magneto coming up and he will very much, although the metal master will return from time to time, uh, Magneto will very much take the place of him. But it's interesting how different the metal master is from Magneto. He doesn't just bend metal like Magneto does. He turns it into liquid and then reshapes it. And I think it's just gorgeous. It's, it's oh, yeah. good to have a, a much more sort of unique and interesting take on magnet powers that really makes him a distinct and visually brilliant character. I think it's great. Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it really is. Oh, and I love also sure. the Metal Man has such a unique original look, and I love how he flies on on a little square metal plate. And so he looks very different from flying from other flying people because he's sort of standing majestically on this metal plate and flying around on it. I think it's very cool. I think they refer to it as a metal flying carpet at one point in the issue. Yes. So then uh, they try shooting missiles at him, not yet figuring out that, you know what missiles are made out of? Metal. It's not working. So then Banner is trying to change back into the hull to go ahead and face this guy and so he turns into hulk but still has banner's head and face which is a really bizarre weird looking thing <laughs> it looks just as weird as it sounds and so they're like oh my god what are we gonna do so he's like eh, well you know what 
Bruce Banner made this mask of the Hulk over here when he was trying to study our two faces and how they differed. So I'll just go ahead and shove this mask on my face and then I'll just go out and do my thing because apparently Bruce Banner bothered to make it the right color and give it a wig and all sorts of stuff in order to study the face. So this is where we have that sequence you were talking about where they make it exceptionally clear that what he is doing is jumping. They actually have a, what is it, five panels in the middle row there that show him having an initial hop and then landing in a crouch, and then getting down to his maximum crouch, and then springing up, getting into his big jump. So yeah, they're, they're, they're very much establishing. He cannot fly, but he can jump as though he can fly. So he then finds the Metal Master. Metal Master sends a whole bunch of stuff at him, puts him in that metal cage that we saw on the cover. Uh, the Hulk is able to bust his way out, though, because he is the Hulk. And uh, once again, just love the way the Hulk is rendered on page 10 here. Uh, but the Metal Master is able to knock him out. Well, so the Metal, Master, the Metal Master says that the Hulk should join him. And the Hulk is like, right. oh, wait, maybe I should join him. And it's like, then he says, nah, forget it. I ain't buying it. The Hulk needs nobody. I can do what I got to do without you. I'm the Hulk. Do you hear me, the Hulk? So, and the Metal Master right. says, okay, then I'll just knock you out, which he does. Right. Yeah. So I guess at, the, at this point, the Hulk is uh, not so powerful that, that you couldn't just knock him out with a uh, knock him in the head with something heavy. So the military shows up and they're like, hey, wait, this is a rubber mask. Now, it's odd that, you know, oftentimes you've got a human sized person wearing three masks on top of each other. No one notices <laughs> that that outermost mask is a mask. They're like, oh, that's just Joe. But right here they're like, see, oh, wow. So the Hulk with this human sized head and this Hulk shaped head on top is like, oh, wow, look, that's a rubber mask. So I don't know why this works in some cases and doesn't in others. This is just an unusually perceptive soldier. He has he has powers of perception that no one else in the Marvel Universe has. He can spot masks in a way that no one else can. So then it turns out that his changing back and forth has just gotten out of whack and that he eventually did turn into the Hulk on the head as well. But then we didn't know that since it was under the mask. So they capture the Hulk. They bring him back chained up between a few different helicopters and dump him into a specially made cell that uh, they've created just for him. Rick uh, insists on talking to him to try and uh, reason with him, uh, but the Hulk is really upset at him, thinks that he's the one who turned him in, and uh, drives Rick away, and then he just starts hammering away at the inside of this thing, and he will eventually hammer his way out. Uh, Rick, meanwhile, asks the general how he can join the army. <laughs> the general's like, hey, you're too young, kid. You're just 16. I tell you what, go uh, get an education. That's what we need. And he's like, oh, phooey. I wanted to go off and join the army. Yeah, the, um, the best so that Thunderbolt Ross has ever been portrayed here. This is Thunderbolt Ross coming off like the voice of reason for the first time ever. Yeah, and possibly the last time ever. Uh, so then we see the metal man going off and creating all sorts of other havoc. Uh, he's uh, creating havoc in uh, the Middle East. He's creating havoc in uh, Africa and Europe. So then Rick Jones is meanwhile being dejected. He walks around and uh, runs into some other kids he knows. And they're like, hey, come on, we got something to show you. And it turns out that one of the guys in his group of friends has gotten a ham radio. And then Rick is like, wait a minute, that's how I'll help. I'll form the Teen Brigade. Now, the Teen Brigade is something that keeps up for a little while here, and then it shows up again years later 
in the Hulk stories written by Bill Mantlo, where they end up reviving the idea of the teen brigade, but now they're now they're like middle-aged men and they're still though breaking out their ham radios for one last sort of thing to help out the Hulk. Right. Which uh, but that was during our youth. Uh this is before we were born. So um oh and on page 13, there's uh something with the back and forth with the teenagers. There is a bit of teenager speak that seems not, like, not something I recognize. Uh, on page 13, panel 6, uh, they say, Hey, the Teen Brigade, it sounds neat. It says, REIT, I'll buy it. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that. What is that? REIT? R-E-E-T? Is, is, is that like yeet, you know, six decades early? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard this bit of teen <laughs> slang before. R-E-E-T, exclamation point. Okay, this is new to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, the Hulk eventually is able to smash his way out of this supposedly unbreakable bunker that he'd been put in. So the Hulk makes it back to his lab. He is able to turn himself back into Bruce Banner, but it's becoming clear that this is just not tenable. It's just too painful. It's weakening him. He's getting unpredictable results. So R- Rick Jones helps him back into bed, and he's saying, oh, yeah, you know what? The teen brigade can go get all the stuff you need for this plan that you've said that you have. So then Bruce says... I've thought of a way to beat the Metal Master, but I need help. I can't do it alone. And then then Rick is like, hey, we can use the Team Brigade to help you. So then he goes out and finds these guys, and then they're going out to get equipment and using their ham radios to ask for this, that, and the other, and they're getting this whole thing together. So then uh, Bruce Banner turns himself back into the Hulk. There's a big meeting where they're talking about what we're, what are we going to do about the Metal Master. We then see the Metal Master is also uh, wrecking havoc with the commies. It's not just us. He is he is an equal opportunity tyrant here. So then the Hulk is able to use the stuff the Teen Brigade got him to make some kind of killer weapon. And everyone's like, but he's just going to do something with the metal. Like, you know, what's up with that? It looks like a huge metal yes. gun. So then he's got this thing slung over his shoulder that looks like this massive metal gun he's going to shoot the metal master with. Now, the geography from this point on in this story gets just really woolly. (laughs) So, uh, because the metal master is supposed to be in Washington, D.C. to try and take over our government. Meanwhile, all of our action so far has been taking place in the southwestern desert. So presumably New Mexico, Nevada, somewhere in there. Okay, we've established the Hulk can jump long distances and travel long ways going that way. So he's going to go and go to Washington, D.C. to face the Metal Master. So then meanwhile, the Teen Brigade is like, hey, let's go too. So then they drive from uh, the southwestern desert to Washington, D.C. in one panel. Yes. Because that's the way that things work in the Marvel Universe. The Metal Master is trying to wreck the Hulk's weapon and he's expending all of his mental energy to take it apart. And he's like, what's going on? How have you come up with this weapon that I can't manipulate? And then also here, uh, they do at least acknowledge the geographic problem a little bit on page 20 when Thunderbolt Ross is told, General, a report just in from headquarters. The Hulk and the Metal Master are face-to-face on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. And Ross says, don't just stand there, man. He wasn't standing there, by the way. He was, like, rushing in the door. Don't just stand there, man. Have my jet prepared for flight. And then on the next panel, it's or two panels later, it says, After a record-breaking cross-country jet flight, Thunderbolt Ross takes command of the assembled missile strike force. Um, so that was a 
record-setting jet flight across the country. But meanwhile, we didn't really mention the uh, kids driving their car uh, the same distance in the same amount of time. Uh, so anyway, the Metal Master uh, is get, trying to get closer and closer to be able to get his powers over this weapon of the Hulks. And it turns out it was just a prop. Yes. Hulk just had a prop. It was supposed to look like metal, so the Metal Master would expend all of his energy trying to do that. And so he then is able to basically just grab the Metal Master and be like, I'm going to punch you. He's like, oh, no, 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 don't, not in the face, not in the face. And uh, so then Hulk's like, okay, well, then you got to put everything back like it was. So he's able to just right there put all of the metal back the way that it was when he found it. Apparently, he remembers exactly how it went. Yes, reassembling, then, uh, reassembling the Soviet missiles, presumably, and tucking them back <laughs> safe and warm in their beds. Right, right. It couldn't be like put everything back like it was, except the except the Soviet weapons. Just leave leave those. You know that's that's good. So then we see on page twenty one, Rick lifting or one of the Teen Brigade. I don't know if that is Rick or not lifting up the prop thing. Just like oh look, even I can pick this thing up. And then we have a really weird panel on the bottom of page twenty one of the Hulk like tousling this kid's hair. Yes. You know, it's like I guess you kids deserve most of the credit if you hadn't rounded up all the junk I needed to make the gun. It would have been too late. I was like, wow, this is who who is this character? <laughs> so then uh, the Hulk jumps back off with Rick on his back to go back to the Southwest Desert. And um, then when he gets back to his secret lab, he tries to turn himself back into Bruce Banner, but it doesn't work at all this time. And even though Hulk always hated t- turning back into puny Banner, uh, now at this point, he starts to be frightened that he'll never be able to stop being hunted because only when he was Banner, even though he hated Banner, that in that form, he wasn't being uh, hunted by everyone. And uh, Ditko's, Ditko's um, uh, figure drawing is so expressive on page 23. Panel four on page 23 with the Hulk doing his like, yes. Charlie Brown droop there. <laughs> it looks like he should be literally kicking rocks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but then he does turn back into Bruce Banner. It's just a delayed reaction. So in the end, Betty is um, ecstatic when Bruce shows back up. He just said, oh, yes, well, I was uh, feeling down, so I decided I need to take a rest cure in the Bermuda. Apparently that's going to be okay. But Betty's just so happy that uh, he's alive. She, meanwhile, has also figured out there's something going on with you and the Hulk. And hey, don't I mean enough to you to tell me what's going on? But, you know, once again, second time in the same month that people are like, hey, Bruce, do you have something to tell me about you and the Hulk? Because I kind of feel like you do. Well, so, I mean, first we see in the penultimate panel, we see Bruce and Betty walking off in the moonlight in silhouette. And he's saying, I can't tell you anymore, Betty, because you mean too much to me. As for the Hulk, let's hope that he is gone now forever. And it sort of feels like, okay, we're admitting this is the last issue. And, you know, we're sending the two lovers off into the sunset together and saying that maybe the Hulk is gone forever. And then they have one last panel in which it says, but alas, the hope of Bruce Banner is not to be realized for the Hulk is destined to live again. But that's another tale. So he seems to be saying you will see more of the Hulk, but not in this book, because this is the last issue. And then it doesn't say, come back next issue for more Adventures of the Hulk. It just says the end. And then there's a house ad on the bottom saying a new different superhero, Iron Man in Tales of Suspense now, which is the other book that will be taking the place of the Hulk. Interesting. So they 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 uh, eliminated that house ad from the um, from the Marvel Unlimited book here. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Because uh, they didn't, obviously, when they were introducing the Hulk in the first place. And they had, who is the Hulk? What is the Hulk? <laughs> you know, and all that stuff all through the issue of uh, Fantastic Four. Huh, that's interesting that they uh, uh, cut that out here. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I really enjoy this last issue. Um, it's, you know, very much a change of pace. And, you know, part of that is because of how much Stan was relying on his two most dependable uh, visual storytellers to take a lot of the weight of telling the story. Uh, or at least it seems that way to me. But I, I, I really I really like Steve Ditko's different take on the Hulk. I mean, it's not like I don't like Kirby's. But he feels a little bit more Boris Karloff. Yeah, it's a really scary Hulk face and very expressive. And uh, again, good spotting of blacks. Everything has a, a thickness and a weight to it under Ditko's pen, under his gorgeous inks, uh, which are just as important as his pencils. We've got Ditko's famous nine-panel grid in a lot of these pages that was mm-hmm. then later. People don't realize, you know, people talk about Watchmen having like, oh, Watchmen has this very distinctive nine-panel grid. It's like, yeah, because Watchmen was a big tribute to the work of Steve Ditko, and it was just taking directly the nine-panel grid from Steve Ditko. But oh yeah, and it, it was just staying. It was just like taking this thing that Steve Ditko is kind of known for, and then just really systematizing it. Just like I know this is something Steve Ditko would tend to do, but no, in Watchmen we're going to do it every single page. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, play with it, but uh, but then do it. Well, well, I'm sorry. You will have there will be no panel borders that are not on the nine panel grid. Yeah, let me put it that. Yeah. But uh, so now we have. So this issue, I think it's a great issue. So we're going to have four different books this month in which Kirby is going to be replaced. As far as I'm concerned, this is the only one where they replace Kirby with a great artist, with an artist of Kirby's caliber. And it's the one that's canceled. So it's, <laughs> it is a shame. The other three books that replace Kirby will keep going with weaker artists replacing Kirby. This book replaced Kirby with another great artist, and it is canceled as of this issue. Now, eventually, it will be brought back in an anthology with shorter stories in a couple of years, and Dicko will come back. You know, when people talk yes. about Dicko at Marvel, they'll talk about Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. But... People forget that he also did this last year's Falk, and then he picked up the book again when it came back later and did some excellent work on it. But, uh, you know, I do I do remember back in childhood, like back when I was in middle school or whatever, and we were reading these things in the 80s, I do remember getting at least sort of a vague impression that Steve Ditko had had some important contributions to the early Hulk mythos. But, you know, I was a little unclear on exactly what he had done but yeah it's a uh, it's more than just this one issue he actually is it does some quite pivotal it's funny steve ditko also he's not remembered for you know, we're going to be seeing iron man for the first time shortly here uh or that may be next episode depending on how we cut this up but uh steve ditko is the one who designed the iconic red and gold armor that's true i'd forgotten that he did do a couple of issues yeah. of iron man and he designed that armor that is basically yeah. the armor we know iron man by today Right, this is sort of, sort of the, the one that was finally the, oh, okay, so this is what Iron Man's going to look like for the next decades, um, was Steve Ditko. So yeah, it's, it's odd that, you know, he is not really associated with the Hulk or with Iron Man, but he had these brief runs on both of those characters that really was critical to their uh, later development. So let's talk about the Metal Master. I think the Metal Master is just a great villain, and I've got to say... Of all of the comics that Stan Lee ever did, this may be my favorite clever twist 
of all of Stanley's comics that, you know, to the degree to which we want to credit Stan or we want to credit Steve, this idea of you've got a metal master who can control all metal. How are you going to defeat him? Every weapon you're going to try to fight him with is metal. And then I had remembered, I had completely remembered that I remembered this being a way that they defeated Magneto once. It's not. And I'd remembered it being that I'd remembered it being Reed Richards fighting Magneto and carving a wooden gun to fight Magneto with. Instead, <laughs> it's the Hulk fighting the Metal Master. And it's not actually wooden. I remember it's being wooden. But he says, you did it. Cardboard and plastic. They say, you did it. Oh, you beat the Metal Master. But how? What kind of metal was that? And he says, anybody could have made it. Except most of you dumb humans always lose your heads when something happens. It wasn't any kind of metal at all. Just plastic and cardboard. I painted it to look like metal. It was a buff that paid off. Which I think is just a tremendously clever ending to the story. A tremendously clever solution. Now, of course, we don't know this twist yet when the Hulk is saying... All right, let me go ahead and have you Teen Brigade people assemble all of the materials I need to make this weapon. And we have this whole sequence of the Teen Brigade assembling the materials he needs to make the weapon. Apparently, they were just assembling plastic tubing um, and 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 gunmetal paint is uh, what he was was what they were assembling for him. But uh, so that doesn't really line up. But it's it's tremendously clever. I love this solution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it strikes me as I would think, eh, well, you know, I would think the metal master would be able to tell what is metal and what isn't metal. So it, I wouldn't necessarily be putting all my eggs in this basket, but as it turns out, it was, it was fine. Well, as you've pointed out before, every time anything is metal in the Marvel universe, it's always riveted. And yes. in fact, there are rivets on this, on this gun. So it's clearly metal. I think that anybody can look at this gun and see it's metal because it has rivets. Check and mate. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so shall we move on to journey into mystery? Well, okay. I think guys, no? we should, we, we've been recording for an hour and a half. This is going to cut down to about an hour, but I think we should go ahead and clear a wrap up to this episode. We've done the three full length books. Now we've got the four half length books and I say we should go ahead and cut here and we may keep recording, but let's go ahead and wrap up this episode here. All right. So, um, uh, what what kind of wrap up do you have? Do you have any uh, final thoughts on these uh, first three full length books here before we go? Nope. I think I think we've said a lot. I think I think we've covered them, and I don't. And you know, I've got a lot more to say uh, about the next four books, and then I may have some stuff to say about this whole month, this whole monumentous, monumentous month in Marvel history, and all the various changes that have made. Because we talked about this book, the changes that are made as soon as Kirby is off the book. And who boy, are we going to get a lot more in our next episode? Absolutely. So until next time, let's just say, I know that Matt usually likes to thank only our American readers, but I will say Arrivederci and Auf Wiedersehen and Das Vidania and I'm trying to think what's French. <laughs> Um, au revoir but, uh, au revoir sure yeah why not uh something like that i don't know what we'll I, I should ask ask Batroc, but he he's not going to show up for another couple of years there's a bond movie where the villain says to bond at one point like oh yes au revoir you know that doesn't mean goodbye that means we'll meet again and then later the villain is put bond in a death trap and he says goodbye mr bond and bond says au revoir <laughs> yes okay well anyway thank you everybody for listening and uh we will uh get to the rest of these issues for this month uh, in our next episode okay bye guys take care thank you for listening to marvel reread club please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us go to secretsofstory.com and click on marvel reread club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode see you next time